0: Uh, Let's back up slightly and we'll pick up. uh, Pick up notes works for me. Uh, We'll sort of gear into uh, this next um, paragraph and then the rest of the section. Uh, Let me see. How do I want to start? I'll start how I always start. How does that sound? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective and our continued reading of Anti-Oedipus, Deleuze and Guattari's epic on capitalism and schizophrenia. We're about halfway through uh, Chapter 3, Section 9, as we start discussing how the capitalist machine works and how we move from the despotic machine into this. We've covered a lot already, and no doubt we're going to end up having to do a review session Later this week, as we start figuring out uh, really all the different questions that we have and that you have, uh, we tend to have people come into the server afterwards after listening, after reading this and messaging me directly or posting little questions about uh, their their issues and what the questions they were having are. Feel free to do that. Uh, we are going to be having some kind of review session later this week. But for now, uh, we are on going to be reading from the bottom of page 231 in my edition. Uh, it is up in the... Uh, 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 YouTube stream you should be able to see where we're at and I'm just going to uh, sort of uh, tear through this and we're going to get through this paragraph and I'm just going to continue into the next one with a brief pause for any commentary so that way we can pretend we're picking up from yesterday at least in some way so uh, allow me to read Now, this movement of displacement belongs essentially to the deterritorialization of capitalism. As Samir Amin has shown, the process of deterritorialization here goes from the center to the periphery. That is, from developed countries to underdeveloped countries, which do not constitute a separate world, but rather an essential component of the worldwide capitalist machine. Side note, we discussed quite a bit yesterday that uh, the timing of this was right as the concept of outsourcing uh, was really starting to be used. Uh, the cars being built in uh, Japan, for example, were starting to become a threat to the American auto industry. Uh, China was just starting to get manufacturing underway. Generally speaking, Taiwan, Vietnam, South Korea uh, were starting to develop in that way, but very much as an outsourcing house for the West uh, in a lot of ways as they developed their own economies. So the timing of this, well, now obviously a lot of the things we know this was uh, decently ahead of the time, at least as far as the timing goes. Uh, it must be added, however, that the center itself has its organized, <clears throat> has its organized enclaves of underdevelopment, its reservations and its ghettos as interior peripheries. Piemusa has defined the United States as a fragment of the Third World that has succeeded and has preserved its immense zones of underdevelopment. And if it is true that the tendency to a falling rate of profit or to its equalization asserts itself at least partially at the center, carrying the economy toward the most progressive and most automated sectors, a veritable development of underdevelopment on the periphery ensures a rise in the rate of surplus value, in the form of an increasing exploitation of the peripheral proletariat in relation to that of the center. Or it would be a great error to think that exports from the periphery originate primarily in traditional sectors or archaic territorialities. On the contrary, they come from modern industries and plantations that generate an immense surplus of value, to a point where it is no longer the developed countries that supply the underdeveloped countries with capital. Quite the opposite. So true is it that primitive accumulation is not produced just once at the dawn of capitalism, but is continually reproducing itself capitalism exports filiative capital. At the same time as capitalist deterritorialization is developing from the center to the periphery, the decoding of flows on the periphery develops by means of a disarticulation that ensures a ruin of traditional sectors, the development of extroverted economic circuits, a specific hypertrophy of the tertiary sector, and an extreme inequality in the different areas of productivity and incomes. Each passage of a flux is a deterritorialization in each displaced limit, is a decoding. Capitalism schizophrenizes more and more on the periphery. It will be said that even so, at the center, the failing tendency retains its restricted sense, i.e. the relative diminution of surplus value in relation to social capital, a diminution that is ensured by the development of productivity, automation, and constant capital. Uh, so, to uh, sort of recap a little bit of what this is talking about, um, it, at least to me, and I, we didn't spend a lot of time going over this paragraph, so I'd love any any core thoughts on it, but um, it, what they're talking about here is ultimately how the, the tentacles of capitalism attach themselves to these secondary colonies, these colonized lands where, uh, you know, you outsource it, as I mentioned, the Taiwans, the north africa that wherever it may be france had its own during this time Uh, they had a significant colonial history and its big point here is that uh it's not so much about uh, there is a center and an external exterior and that those are uh you know basically shipping goods purely in instead uh the pumping of flows is continuous and that actually the Uh, peripheral cities that are doing this, that the Taiwans and the outsourced places are actually generating cash and generating flows in, which is a really good way to look at it, um, I think. Uh, Anyone? Anyone? I haven't made a Bueller joke on this server yet, but I know when no one uh, does this, I, I feel like it. (laughs) Well then, I will continue reading into the next paragraph, and we will uh, start then. This problem was raised again recently by Maurice Clavel in a series of decisive and willfully incompetent questions, that is, questions addressed to Marxist economists by someone who doesn't quite understand how one can maintain human surplus value as a basis for capitalist production, while recognizing that machines too work or produce value, that they have always worked, and that they work more and more in proportion to man who thus ceases to be a constituent part of the production process in order to become adjacent to this process. Hence, there is a machinic surplus value produced by constant capital, which develops along with automation and productivity, and which cannot be explained by factors that counteract the falling tendency, the increasing intensity of the exploitation of human labor, the diminution of the price of the elements of constant capital, etc., since, on the contrary, these factors depend on it. it. seems to us, with the same indispensable incompetence, that these problems can only be viewed under the conditions of the transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. In defining pre-capitalist regimes by a surplus value of code and capitalism by a generalized decoding that converted the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux, we were presenting things in a summary fashion. We were still acting as though the matter were settled once and for all at the dawn of capitalism that had lost all code value. This is not the case, however. On the one hand, codes continue to exist, even as an archaism, but they assume a function that is perfectly contemporary and adapted to the situation within personified capital, capitalist, the worker, the merchant, the banker. But on the other hand, and much more profoundly, Every technical machine presupposes flows of a particular type, flows of code that are both interior and exterior to the machine. Forming the elements of a technology and even a science, it is these flows of code that find themselves encasted, coded, or overcoded in the pre capitalist societies in a way that they never achieve any independence. Blacksmith, astronomer the decoding of flows in capitalism has freed, de-territorialized, and decoded the flows of code just as it has the others, to such a degree that the automatic machine has always increasingly internalized them in its body or its structure as a field of forces, while depending on a science and a technology, on a so-called intellectual labor distinct from the manual labor of the worker, the evolution of the technical object. In this sense, it is not machines that have created capitalism, But capitalism that creates machines and that is constantly introducing breaks and cleavages through which it revolutionizes its technical modes of production. All right, I'm going to uh, step back and I'm going to agree with Alyosha that one of the things I would love, and I know we have a few of you uh, here have read Simondon, but we only have a few of you. But uh, if anyone has a moment to talk through, the nature of text, text technical machines. Here, um, I think uh, the nature of technical objects could be a useful conversation. Let's ping uh, Simon. Did now oh, that's a good idea, Alyosha. We need someone to come explain because it's. Lot. So
1: can we break down the elements of this maybe in the meantime? Because there's a lot going on in this paragraph. I mean, the beginning starts with they're critiquing this person, apparently. They talk about the surplus. I'm not like sure they're critiquing surplus. him. So
0: let's, let's, let's absolutely break this down. I agree. So let's, let's talk about Maurice Clavel and the series of questions. Because I don't think there's so much uh, critiquing him as they are saying uh, he was asking rhetorical questions. Uh, I, uh, concepts around the idea of, well, how how does uh, a modern day worker exist, but also the machine that is doing the majority of the production now, uh, which was the case then as, as automation was really beginning, but much more now. And I say, uh, you know, you go to the Tesla factory and the people are effectively there to guide machines into their next job. They aren't really producing anything. They're more guidance mechanisms for how the machine moves pieces from one piece to another to another. So the question is, uh, how does one maintain human surplus value as the basis for this capitalist production, while recognizing that machines too work or produce value? Uh, machinic surplus has always been a thing, absolutely, but we're, the last 50 years or 75 years, it's, it's shifted from the person who owns a loom, and the loom helps everything move, to now actually machines really are producing quite a bit, and a lot of it is automated. And when we say automated, we mean there's not really a person involved in the same sense that there used to be. So this machinic surplus value is produced, there is this machinic surplus value produced by constant capital, which develops along with automation and productivity, which cannot be explained by factors that counteract the falling tendency, the increasing intensity of the exploitation of human labor. this feels like it's a, a an evolution of the concept of Marxist human labor within a. Uh, I mean, we're now in a service-based economy, which they probably wouldn't even conceptualize fully. But that um, we rely on those exploitation of the humans even more. Can you go into that point, Alyosha? Please.
1: Well, just I mean, just from what they're saying here, they're saying. Uh, They cannot be explained by factors that counteract the falling tendency, the increasing intensity of the exploitation of human labor, blah, 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 since on the contrary, these factors depend on it. I I read that as saying, rather than automation being this thing which somehow separates labor from this whatever this other process is that machines do that's supposedly not labor, that even the more advanced automation gets and more machines are involved, there's just more labor happens and even more exploitation is just maybe dispersed or works in a different way in the system that's kind of how i'm reading that okay rather than just because the capitalist would probably you could use that logic to say oh well you know we don't need to worry as much about these labor problems because now the machines are taking care of it but that kind of occludes the fact that there's always you know there's there's all kinds of labor to maintain the machines there's you know there's all the different levels of making the machines themselves they even derisively talk about the idea of Separating intellectual labor from other labor, you know.
0: Yes, well, so and and when we talk about this this idea of constant capital, I'm going to try to give uh, my sort of understanding of it. Um, the, there's this idea that if I have, a, let's say, if I, let's say Tesla. Tesla is actually probably a great example. I have my Tesla factory, and I have X amount of capital going in, and uh, cars coming out the other side. There's a level of what they would call constant capital that is going into have those machines there, have those machines set up. And really where I'm able to derive my profit is from the increasingly hardcore exploitation of the few people that I have. Uh, Amazon is another example of this, uh, wonderfully, actually, that uh, the machines, if you've never seen an Amazon warehouse, they are primarily machines going and grabbing shit. And humans are again there. for where they need to be, but their exploitation is so deep and so hardcore that we're really pushing towards the idea of, well, there is this constant capital that flux is how deeply the human is exploited inside of that. No,
1: I'm chewing it over.
0: Yeah. It's, I'm trying to figure out how we can connect this to, um, when, when we're in the despotic times or when we're in the prehistoric times, we have a surplus code. We have surplus everything, really. And we have these release valves. Those release valves uh, come in the form of feasts. They come in the form of celebrations. They come in the form of uh, the sheriff of Nottingham taking extra taxes as on behalf of me as one of my perverted bureaucrats. Uh, the... the the balance and flows happen that direction the balancing of that so that way there's always this release valve um when we talk about uh the the way that these flows work in capitalism and this setup um it's not so much that work is done uh in the same way that once upon a time it was we still have as they talk about um we still have some level of codes that continue to exist. People are capitalist, the worker, merchant and banker, there's some level of that. But on the other hand, more profoundly, every technical machine presupposes flows of particular type uh, that are both interior and external to the machine, forming elements of a technology and even a science. Uh, it is the flows of code that find themselves encastic-coded or overcoded in pre-capitalist societies, such a way that they never achieve independence. Uh, the basically the ways of doing a thing. How we build stuff, how how things are produced. The actual uh, a, a blacksmith is the skill is unto himself. I I hammer and I draw out my sword, and as I do that, my way that I move my arms, the way that I handle the hammer, the way that I use the fire is a skill that I have internally, and someone must learn that through an apprenticeship. Here, though. The flows of code that are both interior and exterior to the machine form the elements of a technology and even a science. It is these flows of code that find themselves in cast decoded, overcoded, in pre capitalist societies. They never achieve independence. They're always attached to the blacksmith and astronomer. But the decoding of flows in capitalism is free, deterritorialized, and decoded the flows of code, just as it does others, to such a degree the automatic machines internalize this way of doing things in their body, producing things uh, that essentially have no direct human input. Uh, The the way of doing things is now done by machine, it's fairly automated, the humans are there to move things between them, Uh, and the so-called intellectual labor is distinct from the manual labor of the worker, is the evolution of the technical object. In this sense, it is not machines that have created capitalism, but capitalism that creates machines. And that is constantly introducing breaks and cleavages through which it revolutionizes its technical modes of production. It, the breaking of industries into the point where it can be completely automated by machines, so that way the the coding, the skills that we once actually had internally, are taken in by these machines, utilized by it, and therefore I don't actually need to know the process, how these things exist, uh, not how it works. The, the flows of capital push these things into machines, and machines produce. That's how I read this paragraph uh, myself.
1: Maybe the next paragraph, I mean, they they say several correctives must be introduced, so maybe they will get more explanation there.
0: Any other thoughts before we move on? Because I just rambled a lot, and I know you guys are typing a lot in chat, but I'd love to have secondary thoughts. Well, So I, I do want to ask, one of the terms that they use in here is uh, the falling uh blah 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 blah. where where, the falling tendency the increasing tendency of the exploitation of human labor and diminution of price of elements of constant capital what is the falling tendency it's the falling rate of profit is how i read that the the nature of profit consistently falling consistently you have to exploit human labor even more you have to make everything cheaper Uh, it's the nature of uh, ongoing capitalist Alright, I'm going to go ahead and continue to read. Uh, really don't want this to become the Brick Show, people, <laughs> um, so please jump in. Um, several correctives must be introduced in this regard. These breaks and cleavages take time, and their extension is very wide-ranging. By no means does the diachronic capitalist machine allow itself to be revolutionized by one or more of its synchronous technical machines, and by no means does it confer on its scientists and its technicians an independence that was unknown in previous regimes. Doubtless, it can let a certain number of scientists, mathematicians for example, schizophrenize in their corner and can allow the passage of socially decoded flows flows of code that these scientists organize into axiomatics of research that is said to be basic but the true axiomatic is elsewhere. Leave the scientists alone to a certain point, let them create their own axiomatic, but when the time comes for serious things, for example, non-determinist physics, with its corpuscular flows, will have to be brought into line with determinism. The true axiomatic is that of the social machine itself, which takes the place of old codings and organizes all of the decoded flows, including the flows of scientific and technical code, for the benefit of the capitalist system and in service of its ends. That is why it has often been remarked that the Industrial Revolution combined an elevated rate of technical process with the maintenance of a great quantity of obsolescent equipment, along with a great suspicion concerning machines and science. An innovation is adopted only from the perspective of the rate of profit its investment will offer by lowering of production costs. Without this prospect, the capitalist will keep the existing equipment and stand ready to make a parallel investment in equipment in another area.
2: I don't have any thoughts.
1: Jesus, I'm, I'm,
0: I'm a genuinely stupid person when it comes to this stuff. And I adore you guys, but really do not put me as the expert here. I, I am rambling with my weird connections that I like to make between this my understanding of generalized media theory. This is not a place for me to uh ramble and be free. I'd love I'm I'm flattered that you think I'm worth just listening to. But I think it's more that you're uh more intimidated to uh a state, so just please tell me what's going on. Tell me what your thoughts are
2: uh I suppose it depends where exactly we're trying to look, but one thing that strikes me too here is that like there seems to me to be some I mean, this is kind of like that basic point about the implicit critique of Marx and Marxian economics more more directly, right? Marxism. Uh, in that like, for Marx, everything boils down to human labor and machinery has this contradictory role in capitalism whereby, and this is non-ontological machinery. So, right, like non-Deleuze and machinery. Machinery will... Reduce human labor and thereby reduce the surplus value that's extracted from labor. So, right, the irony is that the more in, industrial expenditure that capitalists spend, uh, the more the falling rate of profit. Now, this gets in. This is uh, obviously like in distinction to losing watery, um, especially in that last paragraph. But I think their their point more directly is like if we're talking about ontological machinery, right? Where, where like um you know where things are machines, not machinery is separate from things. Uh well, part of their point seems to be that even though this dude misunderstood misunderstands or is not fully educated or is just blatantly disregarded guarding Marx and economics, there's kind of a point here about how machinery and humans are kind of um commingling especially in this, like, with the machinic ontology.
0: The the aside they have and they use for the concept of the true axiomatic, the mathematicians or scientists who are allowed to be, schizophrenized, uh, uh, produce things that are not in line with capital. The example they use is uh, leave them alone, let them create their own uh, truth and find out what's going on. But when the time comes for serious things, Uh, well, now we need to make sure that it realigns with our sort of stated ideology. My my assumption that their use here, uh, when you're talking about their time frame, again, we have to go back to the time frame, 60s and 70s, the idea of quantum physics, or string theory, or all these things was light in someone's eye, that it was still fairly Newtonian, and these ideas were fun. It's one of the reasons that all these continental philosophers you know, non-scientifically jumped on the quantum mechanics bandwagon because it, it opened up this idea that there's more than just this Newtonian world and that's sexy to everyone. That's uh, just sexy to everyone. Now, and I would argue what they didn't realize is actually the concept of non-determinism in quantum mechanics uh, can actually be something that capital is able to swallow up quite deliciously uh, and some really fun versions of that would be quantum computing, for example, uh, that comes directly out of all of those studies. And well, we thought uh, they thought that it would be this freeing science. instead, it's become the opposite, and it's going to do away with so many of the things that we sort of take for granted encryption and all kinds of fun shit. so uh, that their big thing is uh, we need to come back into line with. I don't think determinism is really what they meant there. I think they were speaking colloquially, but more, uh, hey, we have an ideology and you're off having fun. Bring it back in line with what is the ideology of our overall setup, the same way that, uh, which I'm sure they're going to connect, the same way that Oedipus allows people to be schizophrenics. But ultimately, you need to come back into line the way that a psychoanalyst would wherever you're at, uh, push you back into the triangle and sort of force you to fit that mold. Whenever someone is outside of that, capital does the same thing and say, hey, now it's time for the the ruling ideology again.
2: I think you're on the right track, except um, it's not so much the ideology, it's the axiomatic and the, the decoding and deterritorializing, right? Which is, I think, more or less what you're getting at in the sense that like, as... Industrial expenditure and, and, and right capitalism at the large level is dealing with um, with production and all that. It has to deal with variable and fixed costs, right? And so, things like science or research and development or mental activities, so things like what accountants do and all that. This is kind of like this reminds me of the basic split you get with scientists who go to university and learn science there. And then they go into the workplace and they're really miserable. Um, and so far as like, you, you pretty much get the sense of the deterritorialization of the floods of capital, right. The, hmm. And then of the, uh, the decoding that's occurring because you, you, you kind of get this with like the Ford Pinto, right. Generally speaking, I think the people who went to engineering school were probably taught not to do those things, but they're deterritorialized in the workplace and dealing with the intensities and the inscriptions that are going on there. And that stuff is decoded, right? Like it's not about those like um those principles of the order of engineering, right? That starts to get decoded once you're dealing with um sort of like those rules of industrial capital. So more directly like um you know how to get the thing out, right? The innovation has to speak to um counteracting the the like disequilibrium of the falling rate of profit. Otherwise like that's not useful. So like your example of the atomic bomb is good because at first that's codified and territorialized quite differently. But as capital starts circulating around it, that that territorialization gets deterritorialized, right? It gets moved toward a production. And those decoded flows can be put to service of a production for production's sake.
0: Interesting. Okay. I think I'm following. Um, the the thing I think that's tripping me up is uh, their use of the term the true axiomatic uh, which I think I was understanding to be more of a less of an the concept of an axiomatic uh, is something that is what we take for granted as part of our core ideology. How I have been using that word. But then they mean it slightly different. Yeah, they mean it differently than how I'm understanding it. I'd love if you have a second, anyone could explain how they're using it because I'm that's where I'm. I'm having my uh, my break.
1: I think it's like sort of saying what is the logic of capital, uh, you know, comparing that to like other. I think both literally, and metaphorically, like simultaneously comparing that to like scientific and mathematical formal axiomatic systems.
2: So, as I understand it, I don't think of an ideology in like an Althusserian sense where. Or like even like a Marxist sense where we can just kind of ascribe everything and chalk it up to like the capitalist mindset or like the bourgeois perspective. The way I'm reading them here is the the true axiomatic they're getting at. It's not just this quantification that capital is capable of, right? It's that the capitalist machine, at least as I'm reading right here, um, has this ability of, of. the, the Axiomat seems, to me at least, to be situated at the conjunction they talked about earlier, where decoding and teritori- deterritorialization are possible, at least especially at this, this magnitude. So, in some ways, like to simplify my point, it seems to me like, as I'm reading it, the axiomatic is that of decoding, and by extension, deterritorialization.
0: I, I tend to, um, when we're talking about ideology, I tend to, because, I mean, really, I got started down the road of all of this thing, I know he's not everyone's favorite thing here, but um, the, the the concept uh, and how he looks at things uh, from, say, uh sublime object of ideology, which I think was my first real introduction to his thought and thought in, in line with this. Um. The, the idea of almost master signifiers that determine how people view the world, and that everything we take in, we take in through this. Everything we think, we think through this. And these these larger concepts uh, are so they're, they're the, the true axiomatic as they use it here. I would almost in my mind use interchangeably with the concept of a master signifier. These 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 ultimate truths that people are trying to find and go through, but. Again, I'm I'm not saying that I'm I'm saying my reading of this is is through that lens. I think yours actually makes more sense, Jack. And I'm starting to understand it a little bit better because thank you.
2: I think it's actually worse than a master signifier per se though, right? Because it's it's a master signifier, if you want to use that, that that way of thinking, like that decodes, right? So like you've got an axiom that's decoding, right? So it's not like it's not like a signifier where at least there's a sense of meaning, like in the despotic or the primitive, it's, it's kind of the contrary where it's actually a way of sort of effacing um, that meaning, which is kind of how, you know, we get this all the time in capitalism, right? This idea that before capitalism, at least your life had some meaning, right? At least a serf's life had meaning. It's a shitty meaning, but at least it was that there was something to it. You know, now we're in the age of cynicism and piety, Okay.
0: No, I I like that, Alyosha. Master signifier that doesn't signify anything. It is the apparent objective movement that the Rabbatsurs falls back on all over the place onto itself. I think that's... Yes, I think that's helping me...
1: I like yeah, that. I just pasted earlier There's a, that Deleuze and Anthropology article has a nice little concise discussion of axiom, axioms and axiomatics. So to read for to those,
0: I, I'm going to read it. It's, it is really great. Um, in this stage, capital itself is the socius. Codes are replaced by axioms. Axioms are half imperative, half algorithm. Once demanding, instructing, and measuring the maximization of flows, accelerating them as surplus value is skimmed off in these, of these streams. Speed causes everything solid to melt into air and create a torrent of deterritorialization as flows are decoded, mathematized, and mapped on individual bodies of workers and consumers that have been assimilated into the shoshis. This last mapping is to create the minimum territoriality needed to keep capitalism from running off the wheels and is also the point of entry to the Oedipal complex, a mode of control that is treated as much as an institutional dispositive as a psychoanalytic reality that's they're very good that helps
1: i guess the way i'm reading i just said it in chat is that it's almost like a directive for a, a mass kind of coding at a, at a macro level but not the kind of coding we think of with like because when that, that concept of ideology makes you almost think of like ideological coordinates that are assigned by this master signifier but rather this is the exact thing they're talking about that like it's a kind of directive for a mass decoding i mean there's recoding happening in there but it's like it's an unprecedented kind of uh mass form of organizing hmm. chaotic decoded flows and stemming them and moving them into other places so i think that's it's almost like um maybe a genetic you know sign uh, not nothing signif- uh, for genetic um genetic code might be a good i think way of thinking genetic code it. is
0: like, an excellent you know? allegory for that because it, the idea that it's half imperative half algorithm i mean that that's to me that sounds like uh not that I, I I hate Dawkins, but I did like The Selfish Gene as a book uh, conceptually about how the gene works. I hate fucking Dawkins. But that as an allegory, I think works really nicely because I think that is generally how we're talking about this, that it is almost, it's self-perpetuating. Uh, it, it's, it's got drive behind it, the half imperative, but also how it needs to function is built into it as well. So an axiom has this sort of nature of uh, self replication uh like like a genetic code uh, but also the algorithm of what is going to be replicated as part of it it's, it's intrinsic to its qualities every coding in other words entails a constant decoding of what came before it Genetic code points to an decoding that's really yeah this okay, this is starting to make more sense now, so when we're talking about the true axiomatic uh it's almost this drive towards uh The thing that is going to replicate the ideas that are going to move on well we may allow these scientists these mathematicians the artists to be schizophrenized in the corner uh they're free to do their thing in the same way that we have random genes doing random stuff but if as they do their stuff at some point when things get serious we need them to get back in line with what the algorithm is saying that they need to be doing
2: To use an example from um, from at least like my my experience in work, like I think back to the construction industry where there's bidding, right? So you submit a bid for a project, and then when you're in the union business, you have so many carpenters, apprentice level one, apprentice level three, apprentice level five, and journeyman, and so on, and right, like this is where the deterritorializing happens, right? The axiomatic is doing the deterritorializing in the sense that like we're talking about a carpenter journeyman, but there aren't really bodies here, right? Like that's all kind of missing or in a a similar way, the decoding is that like, well, what's a carpenter, right? What's a carpenter apprentice three versus five. I don't know, but it's, it's, you know, they got more years, right? So that's got to count for something. And it does financially, right. Which is the, the larger axiomatic of capital is, um, not just not just simply financial capital, but the quantity of money in that, which goes back to labor value. So, at least as I as I'm understanding, like that's kind of where they're getting at here is this idea that, um, it, in in that axiomatic of like bidding, as I'm understanding it, it has a way of pretty much, you know, it seems to free the worker, but it, it also deterritorializes them, and they become subservient. Um, to the axiomatic, even though, like, uh, you know, like labor itself is decoded here. So, again, like, at least the serf's life had some meaning, but, you know, working for working as a carpenter apprentice and all that, like, that's all an axiom that's just not there, right? Like, that's no, and it's, and I think, paper somewhere, uh,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm rereading this and reading the previous chapter where it's got the examples of the banker and the other ways that things are coded and is it possible that uh, almost uh, in my mind uh, a great example of this would be uh, quantitative investors uh, the idea of an investment machine that basically runs day or night doesn't matter and it knows what it needs to be doing it knows it needs to get more money and it's machine learning based these days and it just goes and goes and goes and it by doing so, it's investing in companies, it's passing capital around, it is making the world change, it's doing these things, but it's doing it almost mindlessly, robotic-like based on the drive and the uh, the algorithm. Feels spot on almost. But uh, yeah, please, uh, Alyosha, please, give a read to the next uh, section. Great.
1: So, uh, thus the importance of human surplus value remains decisive even at the center and in highly industrialized sectors. What determines the lowering of costs and the elevation of the rate of profit through machinic surplus value is not innovation itself whose value is no more measurable than that of human surplus value. It's not even the profitability of the new technique considered in isolation, but its effect on the overall profitability of the firm and its relationship with the market and with uh, commercial and financial capital. This implies diachronic encounters and counter such as one already sees, for example, in the early part of the 19th century, between the steam engine and textile machines or techniques for the production of iron. In general, the introduction of innovations always tends to be delayed beyond the time scientifically necessary until the moment when the market forecasts forecasts justify their exploitation on a large scale. Here again, Alliance Capital exerts a strong selective pressure on machinic innovations within industrial capital. In brief, there where the flows are decoded... The specific flows of code that have taken a technical and scientific form are subjected to a properly social axiomatic that is much severer than all the scientific axiomatics, much severer, too, than all the old code codes and overcodes that have disappeared. The axiomatic of the world capitalist market. In brief, the flows of code that are liberated in science and techniques by the capitalist regime engender and a and machinic surplus value that does not directly depend on science and techniques themselves, but on capital a surplus value that is added to human surplus value and that comes to correct the relative diminution of the latter, both of them constituting the whole of the surplus value of flux that characterizes the system. Knowledge, information, and specialized education are just as much parts of capital, knowledge capital, as is the most elementary labor of the worker. And just as we found on the side of the human surplus value, uh, insofar as it resulted from decoded flows an incommensurability or a fundamental asymmetry, No assignable exterior limit between manual labor and capital, or between two forms of money. Here, too, on the side of the machinic surplus value resulting from scientific and technical flows of code, we find no commensurability or exterior limit between scientific or technical labor, even when highly remunerated, and the profit of capital that inscribes itself with another sort of writing. In this respect, the knowledge flow and the labor flow find themselves in the same situation, determined by capitalist decoding or deterritorialization.
0: Is that where your yours ends? Because mine is mine doesn't have a paragraph break.
1: <laughs> oh really? Sir? Should we keep reading or?
0: No, no, please, no. I just need to make sure that. Hmm.
1: Yeah, there's a James Joyce version of this text that's just all one paragraph.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're not going to keep reading. We're going to stop right there. Uh, great. Ending on capitalist determinants. Okay, who wants to take first crack at this one? Uh, I'll try a very simple version. Uh, human capital is still the center of, of all of this in the Deleuze and Guattari view of capitalism as much as anything else. There's a very simple version. The reasoning they have in here, that's the part to discuss. Like, yeah, still, still human capital. They're not going beyond that.
2: You know, one thing that sticks out to me is that where they're talking about, uh, where they write, in brief, the flows of code that are so-called liberated in science and techniques by the capitalist regime and gender and machine at surplus value that does not directly depend on science and techniques themselves, but on capital, a surplus value that is added to human surplus value, and that comes to correct the relative diminution of the latter, both of them constituting the whole of the surplus value of flux that characterizes the system. So, like, you can kind of read this, or at least I read this as like a building up, but in this sense, like, if you go back to my example, of like the Ford Pinto, like, this is one thing that has always bothered me especially coming from a business background is like you can effectively pay people and sort of demoralize and remoralize them or change their sort of well you know knowledge capital or i would call like ethical capital um at least in light of this chapter i'm really against using that term but it seems to fit really well here but in that sense like this seems to be kind of what they're getting at here is like this surplus value especially of coding like the falling rate of profit in that especially a profit of code this is kind of a scary point they're making to me in the sense that like it's not even just about the money right it's not even just about capital per se but when we're dealing with capital associates and dealing with like the surplus value of code and the surplus value of floods we're talking about how at least as i'm reading this capital words to basically decode things like scientific um, knowledge or ethics and bring them in line with um, the axiomatic, right? So like they fall under that quant- quantification on that, but also it becomes um, a way of like how the surplus code is dealt with too, especially in relation to like, if we go back to their formula of like the differential of that's over Y, is differential, right? Like, in the way that that's affecting labor and, and capital itself, you're creating an immense deterritorialization, and all of this seems to speak to like that is the appropriation, right? That is where the surplus is being extracted. So, like to go back to Marxist economics, it's no longer simply about getting more out of labor, right? Like this is a this is like a, a step above that in terms of what games are.
0: Knowledge, information, and specialized education are just as much parts of capital, knowledge capital, as is the most elementary labor of the worker. There's a wonderful book on uh, games and capital about uh, sort of the, the way that the internet and video games have changed uh, things to be very much based on sort of the free use of our knowledge capital and the creation of capital secondarily. Uh, Amazon reviews would be an example of that, Uh, data harvested from our everyday lives. Uh, The the old joke that if a product's free, that means that you're the product. Uh, So the nature of a lot of these uh, productions now. Parts of capital, as is the most elementary labor of the worker. Really interesting, I like the phrasing there.
2: So, uh, Zizek in uh, Sublime Sublime Object of Ideology references Son Rothel's work on intellectual and manual labor. I wonder if that's related to this.
0: It is. uh, The vassalizer nailed it. It's called Platform Capitalism. Thank you. Uh, And I will never pronounce that poor writer's name right. I'm not going to bother. I ruin everyone's name when I say it out loud. But it's an excellent... But um, I, I would, the, the question: How else would it break a limit only to establish a new one? I think their usage of these terms uh, is uh, similar to the way that uh, the frontiers were used in uh, a few paragraphs before uh, in, our, in yesterday's talk, where we these these limits uh, exist only within the system, and it's not actually an external pressure or hold. The limits exist until they're exceeded. At that point, there's a break, and then we're able to move. And basically assimilate that and uh, territorialize new limits, de-territorialize those again and do it all over and over and over with no seeming actual end. Where did this paragraph end? My version does not have.
1: I, I was just going um, to say just to Jack's point in the chat as well. I mean, I think it might come up later, but there's, I get the distinct sense just from reading some of the secondary literature too that there's. I don't think we can talk about this as purely decoding you know because because i guess the whole point is that you know these axiomatics help to regulate decoded flows but the whole it, the, the scary thing about capital that they're saying isn't just that it unleashes flows and then kind of like lets them do what they want right because because that would that would be a kind of that's like the schizophrenic in their model that would be a kind of uh, there, there's a kind of freedom that, in there yeah yeah so what it it's able to do it in particular ways and that's what lends a modern like you know capitalist culture the feeling in specific contexts of of that kind of freedom of because because you're able to you're able to in certain artistic ways in certain cultural ways and different and even in labor in some ways to have that kind of feeling of the foes being decoded but it always has to be a constant moving of reterritorialization and deterritorialization back and forth back and forth because even just the concept of the limit when it's saying it it displaces the limit and then reestablishes it again i don't see there being a way of talking about reestablishing a limit unless you allow for the possibility of re-territorialization if you don't allow for that then where does it it, it's just it doesn't make sense so i know that might seem like a side point but yeah but even if capitalism is the schizophrenic that's it's not i don't think there's a one one-to-one you know because even the schizophrenic in the examples they use is like. Have, I'm using an Althusserian term here, but it's like interpolated by their environment. And that this, you know, that the whole idea of the body organs that in, in some context, you get like the line of flight where it can go and become this whole inclusive disjunction and it's fine. It's judge Schraber in the forest or whatever, but often it's, you know, it's screaming with pain because it has to like repress all these, you know, the things that are happening within it. Anyway. No, I think that's
0: uh spot on. And again, I think, Obviously, they're going to get back to this, and I don't want to jump too far along, but when we actually get into analysis, this is very much the kind of stuff they're talking about. Um, I'm going to move on to the next paragraph, though, because I do want to finish this section today, not have to do this. But if it is true that innovations are adopted only insofar as they entail a rise in profits through a lowering of costs of production, and if there exists a sufficiently high volume of production to justify them, the corollary that derives from this proposition is that investment in innovations is never sufficient to realize or absorb the surplus-value of flux that is produced on the one side as the other. Marx has clearly demonstrated the importance of the problem, The ever-widening circle of capitalism is completed while reproducing its imminent limits on an ever-larger scale, only if the surplus value is not merely produced or extorted but absorbed or realized. If the capitalist is not defined in terms of enjoyment, the reason is not merely that his aim is the production for production's sake that generates surplus value, it also includes the realization of this surplus value. An unrealized surplus value of flux is as if not produced and becomes embodied in unemployment and stagnation it is easy to list the principal modes of absorption of surplus value outside the spheres of consumption and investment advertising civil government militarism and imperialism the role of the state in this regard within the capitalist axiomatic is the more manifest in what it absorbs is not sliced from the surplus value of these firms but added to their surplus value by bringing the capitalist economy closer to full output within its given limits and by widening these limits in turn, especially within an order of military expenditures that are in no way competitive with private enterprise, quite the contrary. It took a war to accomplish what the New Deal had failed to accomplish. The role of a political-military-industrial complex is the more manifest in that it guarantees the extraction of human surplus on the periphery and in the appropriated zones of the center also because it engenders for its own part an enormous machinic surplus value by mobilizing the resources of knowledge, information capital, and finally because it absorbs the greater part of the surplus value."
2: To Alyosha's thing about the, the New Deal, I read them, them as saying, like, why did it take a war to accomplish with the New Deal? Um, fail to do. But well, the new deal was supposed to stimulate the economy through government expenditure. Right. So like the, this is a point about GDP. So right. Like you have consumptive expenditure um, in addition to industrial expenditure, in addition to government expenditure, in addition to uh, net exports, yeah, which is exports sports minus imports. And that gives you GDP. So like the point I see them making here is like FDR's New Deal was intended to use um, the government component, so government spending money, to elevate GDP, and that would help stimulate the other two, right? And you still see this kind of mechanism today, right? This is just basic, like, Keynesian economics. But the problem is, like, at least as I see them saying there, that didn't help stimulate the economy in nearly the way that a war does because that gets private industry moving that um, that can help elevate consumptive uh, expenditure per- potentially but also when you're exporting weapons and all that that's really you know that gets a lot of expenditure or revenue going so all of this gets GDP to another level
0: well and and i think it would be worth talking about i think the difference in wars they're talking about and the war that Uh, was imminent or happening during the publishing of this book with Vietnam and since and the difference between them. When the New Deal started, which I want to say was early 1930s, actually underway, 1929, 1932, somewhere in there, uh, the goal was to basically have a massive jobs program Uh, They did to some level. It wasn't really enough. Uh, There was a lot of issues there. What the war did at the time is, because it was total, everyone was involved in some way, uh, every factory became uh, tanks. Uh, If you go through Detroit uh, uh, sort of history... People were building cars and they had them, uh, they would call them by the names of the tanks, the factories, the names of the tanks that were built there for the war effort. Extraordinary amount of government capital went into this. But they also, uh, there's also a huge change in unemployment. Because they needed all the men and able-bodied young men to go to war, women actually found their way into the workforce. And so we eliminated unemployment almost completely during the war, and it was something the Great Depression failed to do. And that's, I think, if we talk about, uh, especially within an order of military expenditures that are in no way competitive with private enterprise, quite the contrary. if the government comes in and does something that is competitive with private enterprise, it's it's acting in a way that doesn't actually increase anything or help people, to be frank. But the reality is when it's not competitive and a war is not competitive, they simply just took over the country to do everything. The New Deal pales in comparison to what World War II was able to accomplish. This is not so much the case anymore because uh, of all of the things they've been talking about, the generalized automation of things makes war now... Is specialized knowledge and uh, manufacturing is not the same as it was. In fact, we don't manufacture a lot of our own weapons here anymore. Uh, It's a really confusing setup, to be frank. Um, So the war doesn't quite do the same thing it used to, even though it's still very much status quo and standard. And the the first war that did this was around the time of this of Vietnam War. It was the first one that really the the war machine wasn't the same as it was in World War Two, Korea was a confusing and difficult and different, but Vietnam War was not the same thing. For sure. Just to, just to explain that sort of in between.
2: To, to add on to that, one of the basic common criticisms, especially of like uh, the neoclassical economists, so like Friedman and, um, well, this is more of an Austrian, but like von Hayek, they attack um, Keynesian economics for the idea that kensian economics prioritizes the short run and in doing so it's like you always have to be doing it so right like it's like a drinking problem as the analogy goes you have to keep drinking otherwise it's the Keynesian um ploy falls apart so that's why i say war is now a status quo is war has to be maintained because you've got to keep the stimulus going because now that's it's no longer a stimulus it's status quo right and this is a A particularly important point as we're going through COVID, as we're going through the U.S., dealing with stimulus after stimulus, right? During Donald Trump's presidency, we've now we've seen and this is not meant to be like a political hit or praise, but we've seen two stimuluses. And now we're talking about a third one.
0: In in the trillions, in the trillions of dollars.
2: Yes, unprecedented. And that's. I, that's part of the economic point there. Um, to make a similar point, one of the things that struck me as I was uh, thinking more about this, our discussion yesterday, especially about, Brooks, your question about the poors, is I think one of the things that they're, they're really digging into here is the relationship of, um, of merchant capital, of the bank and all that to the state, especially as Keynesian Economics creates a central bank. We call it the Federal Reserve. But in doing so, this is getting into a different power relationship of, of um well, and of merchantism and of the state.
0: And with that, I'm actually going to say we're going to move on to the next uh, paragraph because it's literally about this what we're discussing. Um, the state, its police, and its army form a gigantic enterprise of anti-production. But at the heart of production itself and conditioning this production. Here we discover a new determination of the properly capitalist field of imminence. Not only the interplay of the relations and differential coefficients of decoded flows, not only the nature of the limits that capitalism reproduces on an ever wider scale of interior limits, but the presence of anti production within production itself. The apparatus of anti production is no longer a transcendent instance that opposes production, limits it, or checks it. On the contrary, it insinuates itself everywhere in the productive machine and becomes firmly wedded to it in order to regulate its productivity and realize surplus value. Which explains, for example, the difference between the despotic bureaucracy and the capitalist bureaucracy. This effusion from the apparatus of anti-production is characteristic of the entire capitalist system. Capitalist effusion is that of anti-production within production at all levels of the process, On the one hand, it alone is capable of realizing capitalism's supreme goal, which is to produce lack in the large aggregates, introduce lack where there is always too much, by affecting the absorption of overabundant resources. On the other hand, it alone doubles the capacity, sorry, on the other hand, it alone doubles the capital and the flow of knowledge with a capital and an equivalent flow of stupidity that also affects an absorption with realization and that ensures the integration of groups and individuals into the system. Not only lack amid overabundance, but stupidity in the midst of knowledge and science. It will be seen in particular how it is at the level of state and the military that the most progressive sectors of scientific or technical knowledge combine with those feeble archaisms bearing the greatest burden of current function.
2: Yeah, and this is kind of the scary thing to me, too, though, because, like, you um, go back to the points about, like, deterritorializing and reterritorializing, like, if capital is the socius and that is dealing with de and decoding, that which comes into play with it, right, the scary thing is, is it seems to me, is that um, you only rediscover those connections of the primitive, right, those territorialities and um, those codings insofar as things are done in relationship to capital. And that seems particularly important here as we're starting to talk about how the state where it's in conjunction with capital.
1: Does anyone, could anyone, just the example I gave in chat, is that, does that work as an idea of the, when they say anti-productions embedded into the production process itself? Like as a crude example, could we think of, you know, enforced obsolescence of technical objects? So like Apple, you know, different companies building things essentially to break.
2: Well, that would be the innovation, right? Um, where where I think that like this reminds me of their point about desire and and the death instinct, right? So like, where they talk about how as capitalism is coming, as this machine and this break happens, right? One of the critical things here is that the death instinct, um, becomes latent in desire, right? And at that level, one of the things they, they they write, and I think this is how they phrase it. What will give a name to this new desire? So like where I think of it is like, your example might work in the sense that like the desire that's flowing through like headphones, for instance, and headphone jacks, where those machines are in play, there's a way that that's dying. And I kind of like your point where like that dying gives way to the potential for a displacement of a limit that um, that speeds to this this need for innovation to sort of countervail uh, falling profit because it's been it's been laden for so long through the headphone
1: jack. So let me let me ask. I'm just spitballing here, but like I'm just trying to think of. I know this isn't the only way they're thinking about it. But like in that example, yeah, headphone jack. I guess I'm thinking about black being produced in the sense of like for example we tend to think of garbage or trash as i suppose you you could think of it as something but you tend to think of it as a negativity it is the absence of something or it's the, something no longer exists and now it's the other thing and we treat it and sort of as a thing that you put out of society i mean you literally if you look at how trash is dealt with they like ship it on barges you know to like in europe at least it's like turkey is just taking all of the poorly recycled materials from the rest of europe so i'm just trying to think of if you can work it in there of like it it almost speaks to the idea of like lack being something positively produced and then reinforcing this other process of production. That is the whole like managing of that lack in another sense in that it has rippling effects, you know, but I guess I'm trying to think of, does that make sense of like, okay, there's artisanal objects, you know, like I think about Spain where my, you know, my, my family is from, and there's apargatas like the artisanal shoes that are rope-soled shoes that are made and there's something about these artisanal shoes, which they, they have managed to somewhat mass produce them. But there's something about the way that they're made and the cultural significance that even in this like developed first world nation, it's one of the few f- like artisanal objects that isn't, uh, you know, destroyed. Basically, It's a, you could still find people who who make them. And it's very, it's quite rare, but that along with maybe orchata and a few other things is it's still you kind of have. If you want the proper thing, you have to get it that way. But most other things. Are not made that way right and they're made in a way to like you know like primark clothing whatever the equivalent is in the the us uh you know the stuff that it's the anti-production is the knowing use of techniques and machines and materials that inherently guarantee you know i buy socks from primark in the uk and they 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 wear out within like three months every single time that is like built into the process of making those socks right
0: I, I'm I'm not sure. I okay. Um, this is maybe a worthwhile discussion of what anti-production actually is, because to me, uh, anti-production doesn't actually involve uh, technical objects at that level. Anti-production is more. Uh, uh, if if we want to talk about it, uh, production is is also not something that works at a technical level. We, we produce things. That is the term. We we produce stuff but when we talk about production it's phenomenological so we're talking more in the sense of uh, i am producing labor i am uh, that is what i'm doing with my flows i'm using production to code flows into these things these objects these blah blah anti-production is any 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 human activity that does not produce
1: value or whatever the socius is Uh, it's not just that it doesn't produce value because it's about because they even even say it here and i think this is where we get the reason i'm trying to use these examples is like we're always moving between the molar and the molecular and one example can help you understand the other so it's not that i necessarily think they're just talking like production on an industrial scale but like because they always say you know it's it's an identical nature but two different regimes but right here they're saying uh not only the where is this the nature on of scale. The apparatus of anti-production is no longer a transcendent instance that opposes production, limits it, checks it. On the contrary, it insinuates itself everywhere in the production machine and becomes firmly wedded in order to regulate its productivity and realize surplus value. That that seems to be very quite literal, in a way. You know, I mean, you could see that in terms of industrial the, their process. their
0: er, their earlier usage of it in uh, the the non the prehistoric times, whatever they want to call it, uh, the the pre the pre uh, uh, whatever the. When when we were tribal, tribal times, anti-production, they specifically refer to ritualized warfare as anti-production. Uh, 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 these moments that are basically these release valves for uh, things that are produced to a point. It prevents hoarding. Uh, uh, the the leader and the tribal council have to have these grand feasts and orgies in order to get the energy out. These are anti-productive and activities. They refer to those. Very much. So I wouldn't say it's non productive. It's that you have a shit ton of production coded. And basically, this is releasing that back into desire, that uh, flow. It's a production of anti production. Um, the, I the, guess the term in, in Dark Deleuze, which, uh, you know, a sister podcast just did a talk on it, anti production is talked about in Dark Deleuze uh, very much along the lines of to quote, prevents realizations of value in a systemic way. Um, and I've I've always kind of liked that definition of it.
1: I guess I guess all I'm saying is I I understand the phenomenological angle, but this entire section that just preceded it was a very detailed discussion of money and industrial processing. So it seems to me plausible that they wouldn't also be talking about anti-production on on both levels. Essentially, I mean, if it's if it works with desiring machines, um, I, mean,
0: I mean, they may be. I they may be actually. I mean, you're right. They are talking very particularly. I think I'm more attached to their opening here, where they talk about the state police army. These things are essentially release valves. Um, uh, in 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 gaming world, when you build a game economy, uh, you call them sinks. Uh, these are places that money goes and it doesn't come back. It's spent, and that's the way it goes. And the state police, its army, the bureaucracy, all these things are anti-production. And uh, so these sinks that exist. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of, uh, actually, no, that, so if we, if we take that and we run with it, the idea of these socks that naturally run out or the fact that I have to buy a new MacBook because I'm not allowed to repair my own fucking thing or my phone that breaks or light bulbs that were specifically built and designed to only last a year, all of those things would actually be technical modes of anti-production. I guess you're right, they would be.
1: I see what you're saying too. If you bring it just back to that first sentence, the state is police and its army, they form this gigantic enterprise of anti-production, and that is, in a sense, what is embedding itself in productive processes. That, it's that it's an
0: economic thing. sink.
1: Um, and and I, some of the earlier examples, I wonder if it, it would work better with the examples of like the scientific research and the DoD, you know, for example, where that you can you could clearly see there. Where anti production comes in, sort of like they're saying about, you know, the scientists are told to stop playing around and now, okay, now come over here and make us a, a running tiger bot, a running dog bot weapon that we can use in war. Yeah. You know, well,
0: so I, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm working right now. The the company I'm working, I'm getting funding, and we're talking to a whole bunch of capitalists. And uh, I don't go in with my pitch, which is I actually want to utilize. Uh, virtual reality and digital to create a non-signed version of allowing people to recognize their music uh, in a way that doesn't utilize like i want to do this crazy innovative thing with interaction like they don't no one gives a shit about that i'm not going to edit that out that's fine no one gives a shit about any of these ideas i have no one gives a fuck about any of this what they want to do is they want to have a conversation around so where will this save cash and then you can say, well, here's how you can save money doing this. Here's what was. They don't care if it's interesting or what it is. We had streamed to YouTube right now to our uh, one viewer, so that that, that dude's running. Um, but uh, but it's I, I think it's it's that kind of mentality of look these innovations, these ideas, these these concepts are great. They, these are sinks. This is where money goes to die, basically in capitalism. Uh, and then the reality is on the other side of that, that when we need to act, all right, it's time to be serious, time to be a grown-up. Now we need to have a men's conversation. Where's the money gonna go and why? That's that's the switch that they're talking about. That no matter what you do, this the setup. What I really like about this paragraph is they talk very specifically. The state, its police and its army are anti-production but they are also at the heart of production itself because the need for capital and how it works is it needs that constant outward push always. Like we, we always have that horizon that we constantly need to be pushing beyond. That's how capitalism works. Staring at the horizon and wanting to take it and then have a new one.
2: Actually, I think it's an inward push, isn't it? Hmm. Because the state, its police and its army form a gigantic enterprise of anti-production, but at the heart of production itself.
0: And conditioning the production.
2: They go on to write, uh, not only the nature of the limits that capital, capitalism reproduces on an ever wider scale as interior limits, but the presence of anti-production within production itself
0: the, apparati- the, the, that the next sentence, the apparatus of anti-production is no longer a transcendent instance that opposes production, limits it, or checks it. That's not the case anymore. Contrary, it insinuates itself everywhere in the productive machine and becomes wedded to it in order to regulate productivity and realize surplus value, which is the difference between the despotic bureaucracy and the capitalist bureaucracy. Despotic bureaucracy exists to be that uh, thing that's constantly letting off that steam and having some level of hoarding. But capitalist bureaucracy does not have that. Capitalist bureaucracy instead is married. The anti-production is married to production here. part
2: of the well, process. I think part of the thing too, though, is like, as I was thinking more about how this section opened up, it seems to me that point about the frontiers and the schizophrenic voyage is that um, if you go back to that question of why the West, not the East, why, um, I don't know, why Spain and not China, it seems to me that, that this point about capitalism is that capitalism is the, the capitalist machine is based on this movement out of the state. So it's a movement without in the sense that it's the same way of like, if you go to the frontier, right? The, the government, as the, as the story goes, the government incentivizes travel westward and people go, but part of the idea is to get away from the government in some sense too. Right. And I think that's kind of, The point about anti-production there is like there's an anti-production is produced but at the same time this point about going outward seems to actually be it it is from without but it also seems to be motivated by where you are right now it seems to kind of be like what pushes you into the schizophrenic voyage
0: i also like uh the last Sentence of this paragraph, uh, not only lack amid overabundance, but stupidity in the midst of knowledge and science. Feels accurate. I'm going to continue to read. Here, Andre Gort's double portrait of the scientific and technical worker takes on its full meaning. Although he has mastered a flow of knowledge and tradition and training, he is so absorbed in capital that the reflux of organized, axiomatized stupidity coincides with him so that, when he goes home in the evening, he rediscovers his little desiring machines by tinkering with a television set. Oh, despair. Of course, the scientist, as such, has no revolutionary potential. He is the first integrated agent of integration, a refuge for bad conscience and a forced destroyer of his own creativity. Let us consider the more striking example of a career… something. With abrupt mutations, just as we imagined such a career to be. Gregory Bateson begins by fleeing the civilized world, by becoming an ethnologist, and following the primitive codes and savage flows. Then he turns in the direction of flows that are more and more decoded, those of schizophrenia, from which he extracts an interesting psychoanalytic theory. Then, still in search of a beyond, of another wall to break through, he turns to dolphins, with the language of dolphins, to flows that are even stranger and more deterritorialized. But where does the dolphin flux end if not with the basic research projects of the American Army, which brings us back to preparations for war and the absorption of surplus value? Well, that's a really depressing analogy they use, and I don't like that one. Palmer Lucky Uh, is a great example of something like this, created Oculus, a VR headset, and when he first got, he was a kid when he started working on VR headsets, and all he wanted to do was create worlds and do video games and all that fun stuff, and over time, (coughs) he ended up selling it to Facebook, and now he works for the Defense Department. Uh, He's got contracts there, working on uh, drones and uh, border security. It, the deterritorialized nature of interactivity in VR, or the potential there, is something that attracts a lot of people. A lot of that uh, I've seen flow into AR, VR applications, Defense Department for DARPA and for other things. So, now this one strikes very particularly. No people like this, but I, I do also Why? like the idea of dolphins. The story of dolphins in the military being used was, I mean, it's a horrible story when you think about it, but it's also really funny where does the dolphin flux end is such a good fucking question i like that dolphin flux.
2: well i have to imagine to your point about like um the virtual reality dude like i have to think that's probably where the stupidity is right like all that knowledge and everything that knowledge capital i mean this this is kind of a comparable point with like marcy and alienation although like to be to be consistent with Antioedipus, this is them simulating Marx, right? Because it's not exactly the same thing by any means, but I think this is kind of the idea, right? Like all that's all that knowledge that goes there becomes like a knowledge capital. So like the knowledge of virtual reality and that, how to make it work. And that almost seems to like be without the, um, whoever you're referring to here. Right. In the sense that there's almost a stupidity there, right? Like they're, They're at once in the machine, but at the same... Well, I probably shouldn't say that. They're at once in the process, but the process is without them, in a sense. Well, and again, this is that point about the schizophrenic voyage going without, right? This frontiers and all that, right? This is something I think we can all kind of relate to, right? There's the sense that capitalism and capital, particularly capital, is always going further, right? It's always expanding or trying to expand, yeah, and that's the idea, right, that you, you go from like the territoriality and like the coding that is in relation to the dolphin or the dolphin machine, if you like. And like when that axiomatic when capital comes into relation with it, now you've got the dolphin, um, you know, the dolphin in relation to knowledge, capital and all that, right? Like, Just a, a brief point, but that third point, um, it seems to me, at least I'm hoping this is a, a clicking moment, but with that point about anti-production, that seems, that reminds me of the earlier point about how capitalism, um, it works through crises, right? So like there's, at least as, as I'm thinking about it now, part of this point about anti-production is in, relation, is in relation to sort of crises moments, which could be in relation to law, could be in relation to other elements of the state. But even with like, you know, the example of the headphone jack, even though that's really simple, that does create a crisis among um, about among headphone enthusiasts, right? Because now, if you want a wired connection, you know Apple is, um, is is problematized, right?
0: I don't. I don't have a response to that. I'm, I'm at if anyone does. If we don't, well, you know.
2: one one thing to go into then might be like. I don't usually think of imminence in terms of reproduction, but their point here about uh, reprodu- capitalist reproduction working through these three aspects of imminence—that that, that statement alone is pretty is pretty interesting to me.
0: The definition of surplus value must be modified in terms of the surplus value of constant capital which distinguishes itself from the human surplus value of variable capital and from the non-measurable nature of this aggregate of surplus value of flux. It cannot be defined by the difference between the value of labor capacity and the value created by labor capacity, but by the incommensurability between the two flows that are nonetheless imminent to each other, by the disparity between the two aspects of money that express them, and by the absence of a limit exterior to their relationship. The one measuring true economic force, the other measuring a purchasing power determined as income. The first is the immense, deterritorialized flow that constitutes the full body of capital. An economist of the caliber of Bernard Schmidt finds strange lyrical words to characterize this flow of infinite debt an instantaneous creative flow that the banks create spontaneously as a debt owing to themselves, a creation ex nihilo that, instead of transferring a pre-existing currency as means of payment, hollows out at one extreme of the full body a negative money, debt entered as the liability of banks, and projects at the other extreme a positive money, credit granted the productive economy by the banks. A flow processing, a flow possessing a power of mutation that does not enter into income and is not assigned to purchases, a pure availability, non-possession, and non-wealth. The other aspect of money represents the reflux. That is, the relationship that it assumes with goods as soon as it acquires a purchasing power through its distribution to workers of production factors, through its allotment in the form of incomes. A relationship that it loses as soon as the latter are converted into real goods, at which point everything recommences by means of a new production that will first come under the sway of the first aspect. The incommensurability of the two aspects, the flux and the reflux, shows that nom- nominal wages fail to embrace the totality of the national income, since the wage earners allow a great quantity of revenue to escape. These revenues are tapped by the firms and in turn form an afflux by means of a conjunction. Flow, this time uninterrupted, of raw profit, constituting, at one go, an undivided quantity flowing over the full body, however diverse the uses for which it is allocated interest, dividends, management salaries, purchase of production goods, etc. The incompetent observer has the impression that this whole economic schema, this whole story is profoundly schizo. The aim of the theory is clear, a theory that refrains, however, from employing any moral reference. Who is robbed? Is the serious implied question that echoes Clavel's ironic question, who is alienated. Yet no one is, or can be robbed. Just as, according to Gavel, one no longer knows who is alienated or who does the alienating. Who steals? Certainly not the finance capital. The finance capitalist, as the representative of the great instantaneous creative flow, which is not even a possession and has no purchasing power. Who is robbed? Certainly not the worker who is not even bought, since the reflux or salary distribution creates the purchasing power instead of presupposing it. Who would be capable of stealing? Certainly not the industrial capitalist as the representative of the afflux of profit, since profits do not flow in the reflux but side by side with, deviating from rather than penalizing the flow that creates incomes. How much flexibility there is in the axiomatic of capitalism? always ready to widen its own limits so as to add a new axiom to previously saturated system. You say you want an axiom for wage earners, for the working class, for unions? Well then, let's see what we can do. And thereafter, profit will flow alongside wages, side by side, reflux and afflux. An axiom will be found even for the language of dolphins. Marx often alluded to the golden age of the capitalist, but the latter didn't hide his own cynicism. In the beginning, at least, he could not be but un- he could not be unaware of what he was doing—extorting surplus value. But how the cynicism has grown to the point where he is able to declare, "No, nobody is being robbed," for everything is then based on the disparity between two kinds of flows, as in the fathomless abyss where profit and surplus value are engendered—the flow of merchants' capital, economic force, and the flow that is derisively named purchasing power a flow made truly impotent that represents the absolute impotent of the wage earner as well as the relative dependence of the industrial capitalist. This is money and the market, capitalism's true police. That's maybe my favorite paragraph they've had in fucking long time. I am marking the shit out of this. I really like this. Long though. This is so long. as Oh, it's two paragraphs for you? Well, shit. Well, I went through two paragraphs. So, let's... uh, I really like this, and I actually think... uh, I wonder how much they're actually being facetious or how much they're being serious here, because there's a lot of... Uh, showmanship in this writing. Uh, I mean, I was getting into it in the voice. I mean, you can probably hear it. Step on off carnival barker kind of thing. But I do wonder how much they're actually being quite serious that inside of the capitalist axiom, it's not possible for people to be alienated or robbed. Like the way that it's set up and the way that it works. Oh, you've got something new. It's, it's oh, you've got unions. Oh, I'd love, let's bring unions in. I'd love to figure out how do we have, is there an app for that? <laughs> Feels. Like it's just a really great, uh, really great paragraph. I really like it.
1: I, I think they're being facetious, but kind of in the sense of I was thinking of Spivak and the Subaltern, her famous essay, Can the Subaltern Speak? And the whole kind of like punchline of that essay, it, you know, isn't she's writing about post colonial uh, subjects and the world system and capitalism, whatever. And the misread kind of conclusion of that essay is that, that she's saying, well, you know, Third world peoples can't speak, but it's, it's not really what she's saying. She's just saying within the, like, the discursive framework of this system, there isn't, ev- there isn't a, f- a voice that the subaltern isn't able to speak. Because I see down here when they're saying how the cynicism has grown to the point where he's able to declare, no, nobody's being robbed. I mean, clearly they're saying there, well, you know, somebody kind of is being robbed. But within the kind of like axiomatics of the system, it almost is as if no one is being robbed. Because where does it happen? Everything is happening on these qualitatively different levels.
0: Yes, we're we're no longer. And I really like uh, their uh, one of the things they do here that it's taken me a little bit to understand. I'm I'm not saying I didn't understand some level of it before, but the reality is that the concept of purchasing power is not the same as a wage once was even 50 or 60 years ago uh you know your grandfather would get a wage he'd go to work he'd come home he'd have his pension waiting that's a very different reality from what i would say we have now with financial and debt based capital which they obviously were talking about very ahead of the curve but the idea that purchasing power which is not a fucking thing it's a flow they're right it's not a thing it's it's a flow this these these the 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 flux uh which is another way of saying flow uh and between that and then the uh, industrial capitalist, who also doesn't really have fuck. It's not like he has money. Like he's got power for sure. Not questioning that. But it's not like he's Scrooge McDuck walking around with cash. There's there's no no money. No one has shit. <laughs> like, no one has shit. I kind I I wonder if that's what they're. That's kind of their almost their tongue in cheek joke is like who the fuck can be robbed? No one has anything. Like the capitalist is is dependent on the fucking worker, and the worker just has purchasing power, which is a derisive, shitty joke.
1: This kind of reminds me. I mean, I remember when I was reading this book at the beginning, and I I kept thinking of that Star Trek episode from the original series where they go to the planet, and there's a war going on, and they're and they're like these two civilizations in this planet, and they're they're fighting each other, and they're trying to figure out what's happening. And every time they're talking to the this alien race, they're, they're rushing to their computers. And they're like, oh no, there's been another bomb, and they're like, oh no, people, more people have to die, and then they realize they, the, the the punchline of that episode is that you slowly realize that there's not actually a war happening, that everything is all computer simulations, and that like virtual bombs are going off, and basically it's just a mass accounting sheet, and they're just moving numbers around, determining who is winning or who is losing the war, but in order to create an actual sacrifice they you have citizens voluntarily so they say according to the war 500 citizens died so like all right we got to send 500 citizens to the to the execution chambers now so people it's basically what i'm saying is that the idea of like the shell game of all of this you know that it, it's increasingly virtual to the point where you know it's like moving numbers across like a kind of counting sheet uh, i think is really interesting
0: and that's i think when we get back into what is the nightmare of decoded flows uh i mean that's what they're talking about here ultimately that but uh, i'm not we're not coding things into like here is your literal wage 72 dollars and it like here's the gold you used to buy a thing here's a chair here's this stuff the, the 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 production that happens which was primitive and it also happened during despotic we're in this place now where it's it's not about how much money i make like that's almost irrelevant it's about purchasing power, which purchasing power is actually just the relative difference between what your ongoing debt is, what your monthly nut is, and how much you take in every month. But that is ultimately a thing that really we're looking at at a molar level, not even molecular. And so really what we need to talk about is the flows of that versus on the other side, the ability for people to have these extraordinary sums of value, Jeff Bezos worth whatever, name a number. Again, he's not Scrooge McDuck. He doesn't have that. He's got that value in the stock in his company and the companies he's part of, and he's got a ton of money. Not saying he doesn't, but it's not like he has 10 billion dollars. So there but that number that he's got is also exceptionally dependent on the purchasing power of the other guy. Like it's it's this insane like things don't exist except as flows and flux between them. That is that is the nature of what they're talking about here, the flux and the afflux, is is that, I really like a flow made impotent that represents the absolute impotence of the wage earner as well as the relative dependence of the industrial capitalist. This is money in the market, capitalism's true police. Things don't exist. Yeah, sure, I'll take that. Um,
2: suppose i read it just a little bit differently like the the point about like alienation for instance like marxism used to argue that um maybe it still does that uh alienation is like this point about um the worker being alienated from himself or more more directly like uh the worker being alienated from the real man right and in that sense like i kind of read this as like there really isn't the real man right there's there's the person and then there's the person dealing with being de-territorialized but it's still kind of the, the same person there's not really this this real man although maybe we find something like that in the axiom but like where i'm thinking too of this point about like um purchasing power like this is also speaking to the both the breaks and the connections here because like economically speaking, purchasing power is like buying power, right? So it's the ability of the currency to to, to afford uh, so much consumption. So the way economists, particularly international economists, talk about this is with something called the Big Mac Index, where it measures how different currencies relate to one another and contrast with how much of a currency it takes to buy a Big Mac, because McDonald's is... Nearly everywhere, right? It's almost omnipresent.
0: I really just, I really like this. I'm I'm going to continue reading the next paragraph. I do want to say, uh, Big Bad Bart McCoy makes a good point. This almost seems like an extreme version of. Marx's version of alienation from one species being, your labor earns you a flow, but nothing real. Yet yeah, uh, they, they use the term uh, everything turns into air. And I think uh, that we, we could also say that uh, all things we do turn into flows or flux. That uh, be another way to say it. I'm going to continue, however. Um, in some sense, capitalist economies, econ- in some sense, capitalist economists are not mistaken when they present the economy as being perpetually in need of monetarization, as if it were always necessary to inject money into the economy from the outside, according to a supply and a demand. In this manner the system indeed holds together and functions and perpetually fulfills its own imminence. In this manner it is indeed the global object of an investment of desire the wage earners' desire, the capitalist desire. Everything moves to the rhythm of one and the same desire, founded on the differential relation of flows, having no assignable exterior limit, and where capitalism reproduces its imminent limits on an ever-widening and more comprehensive scale. Hence, it is at the level of a generalized theory of flows that one is able to reply to the question, how does one come to desire strength while also desiring one's own impotence? How was such a social field able to be invested by desire? How far does desire go beyond so-called objective interests when it is a question of flows to set in motion and to break? Doubtless Marxists will remind us that the formation of money as a specific relation within capitalism depends on the mode of production that makes the economy a monetary economy. The fact remains that the apparent objective movement of capital is by no means a failure to recognize or an illusion of consciousness, Shows that the productive essence of capitalism can itself function only in this necessarily monetary or commodity form that cajoles it, and whose flows and relations between flows contain the secret of the investment of desire. It is at the level of flows, the monetary flows included, and not the level of ideology, the integration desire is achieved. I read the last paragraph. I really like that, and I just want to finish this off because it's a nice final point. So, what is the solution? Which is the revolutionary path? Psychoanalysis is of little help, entertaining as it does the most intimate of relations with money and recording, while refusing to recognize it, an entire system of economic monetary dependencies, the heart desire of every subject it treats. Psychoanalysis constitutes, for its part, a gigantic enterprise of absorption of surplus value. But which is the revolutionary path? Is there one to withdraw from the world market, as Samir Amin advises third-world countries to do, in a curious revival of the fascist economic solution, or might it be to go in the opposite direction, to go further—that is, in the movement of the market, decoding, deterritorialization? For perhaps the flows are not yet deterritorialized enough, not decoded enough, from the viewpoint of theory and a practice of highly schizophrenic character. Not to withdraw from the process, but to go further to accelerate the process, Nietzsche put it. In this matter, the truth is that we haven't seen anything yet. And I will say, this is obviously where accelerationists and <coughs> Nickelodeon <Nicolandra coughs> come from, uh, but there's a lot of ways to interpret this, there's a lot. Um, I Myself, I took accelerationism, and I, I like the idea of it, at least my conception of it. But it's a different direction. It's understanding the flows of these things and what we can do with them. And I really, what do we do? I'm a fan of this. Um, So let's jump through. I want to make sure that we go over a couple of the very, very important points here because they're putting things on a fine tip. We're about to go into how capitalist representation works. And so getting a full grasp of the actual socius operation which is essentially what this uh, entire section is about um, i want to restate one specific uh, sentence the wage earners desire the capitalist desire everything moves to the rhythm of one and the same desire founded on the differential relation of flows having no assignable limit on where capitalism reproduces its imminent limits on an ever widening and more comprehensive scale um this is, uh, to me, one of the most important points of this book is driving away this concept that the thing that drives people is different depending on where they're at. That ultimately, no, the wage earners desire and the capitalist desire, everything moves to the rhythm of one and the same desire. And that desire is founded on its foundation, is these flows having no limit. There is no, hor- the horizon is infinite. And capitalism produces, reproduces those eminent limits on an ever widening and more comprehensive scale. Holds back, detours, and starts again, as Alyosha says. I mean, that's, this is the most important sentence in maybe this entire section because it summarizes it very nicely. Um,
1: I think it's a great little intervention, too, into like the, I guess, that classic romanticized socialist realist idea of like this proletarian subject who will inherently be revolutionary because of x y and z conditions and i mean it's what this whole book seems to be about in its very bougie interesting way of trying to get at you know they keep hinting at this of like who doesn't want to flow who doesn't desire to flow like in the context of this massive axiomatic that's pushing all the flows even if it's in a limitless direction it's sort of it's like the angel of history Benjamin style you know it's still being the wind is pushing it the wreckage is piling up at its feet, and it's pushing towards the future. It's still moving in a direction, and everything that's caught up in that axiomatic, as you know, even the most lowly exploited person, it's very easy to get caught up in that kind of mentality. And I guess, yeah, it, it speaks to me again. Once another way of responding to the idea of not an ideological approach, because it's not about necessarily, we tell her that's a secondary thing. That's an epiphenomenal thing of somebody telling themselves, Oh, I believe this because of these values. And that's what I, you know, this is my culture and we're in the West and that's what this represents. But even without all of that, you know, just as much as somebody with like self-professed anarchist values or something, you know, could easily, you know, wearing clothing from hot topic. I don't know. You can, you can easily, you know, any money of these people, it's not about their belief systems, but it's about literally like the warp and woof of this, you know, this this socius you know leads the flows even as it's unleashing them constantly it's sort of like it's like a violent dam you know that's like it's constantly moving the the limits of that dam further and further up the torrential river or something
0: well and and the last sentence of that paragraph i think puts a very fine point on it when they say it is at the level of flows monetary and flows included and not at the level of ideology that the integration of desire is achieved if you want the place that Zizek gets really pissy, and the entire book, uh, Organs Without Bodies, is really about, it's kind of that line. Because uh, again, when we go back to the master signifier and the concepts and how Zizek's ontology works, it's very different than this. And generally, psychoanalysis, I think, is very different than this. But conceptually, if we talk about this and say, at the level of the flows, all flows, monetary included, is where desire is achieved. That's where our Our pure desire gets to be woken up. That's the reason everyone jumps into this from the vagrant who barely works to the capitalist. It's why all of the people are for this. It's, it's, it's why it's addictive. It's, it's our desires chief. The fuck that's what we want. And it's not a bad thing. We shouldn't consider desire a bad thing as they've talked about so much.
2: Well, and the other point too is like ideology tends to be a little bit more conscious Right. So like if desiring production is working with this unconscious at this level, like as I understand, that's kind of in contradistinction to Marxian um theories of ideologies, because like that seems to be something you're kind of a little bit more actively doing, or even if it, you're going to argue that the um the ideology is, is unconscious for whatever reason, like if it seems to me there's a rebuttal on that too that's um effectively like the ideology still operates kind of like a mirage, right? It's not, if anything, the ideology, it's not really there, right? And that's kind of the, the to me at least, this seems kind of like the self-defeating part of it. Whereas like their point here seems to be like the axioms the capital are working with, is working with, is very much in relation to it um, being the socius, and in that way, it seems like they can kind of maintain all of this, especially with desiring production, um, while also allowing, sorry, while also allowing for this point about, um, you know, what to do about it in the sense that like, it's not that, it's not that, um, going to the third world, like this guy is saying is a problem of like ideology, it's, the, it's more of a problem that, like, capitalism will find you, right? It'll, it'll make its way there. And that you can't you can't start over with something that's constantly going, um, expanding.
0: And I think that, that infinite horizon, because we don't see the edge, and we're able, we know that the system uh, at its basic level is going to take whatever edge we find, integrate it, fall back on, utilize it, and then define a new edge that we go to and we do it again, I think it, it adds to uh, one of the things I've always had issues with, with uh, a lot of people who are accelerationists, but I've looked back on uh, one of my, I've done a lot of reading on sort of the the life and times of Osama bin Laden and uh, the hardcore uh, Islamist factions. And one of their core beliefs is that things, their goal is to get things bad enough that it wakes up the average person. I'm putting it very simply, but that's that's very much what Osama was hoping with, The first World Trade Center bombing with all the attacks he committed with 9-11 was to wake up people by making things so bad, and instead what happened is that uh, not only did that never happen, obviously, (laughs) I mean, we're still here. We haven't had a caliphate of any real significance. Um, We've had wars. Uh, People didn't wake up because people take part, and if their flows, if the monetary flows and the flows of society are where their desires achieved it It pushes people towards that future, but they don't see the edge kind of at any point It's an interesting sort of way of thinking about how people handle history and how people contextualize new events and awful things that are happening um i mean i'm I'm again, I'm just sort of rambling out loud right now, but you know if you didn't watch the Trump uh, Boat parade response to it. And all these things that are happening, these are people who are mostly not super well off or average income earners. And they're not waking up. A lot of our a lot of poor are not. It's it's a it's a difficult path. What is the revolutionary path? I think this really speaks to my brain has been very upset for the last people won't wake up with Biden. People aren't waking up because that we have the wrong thought. There is no spontaneous consciousness. There is no, like how I interpret this, there is no moment of like, oh shit, this is the edge. We know our desires are being met kind of all the time just by nature of being part of the flows. And it's not that we're positively happy or that we're really achieving anything with it. Um, and once we achieve that, the the edge moves again and moves again, but it's, we're we're there kind of in a good place things feel good
2: yeah but as i understand it like the edge is what we're always moving away from
0: well i I suppose that's a perspective question
1: well but i mean it's sort of what they said we're approaching the edge until the point of it being extremely dangerous and then it being displaced again so it's you know i feel like it's kind of both
0: well, and at the same time, we're also, because uh, as they talked about earlier, the police, the military being anti-production are part of all three of those points as well. And those are naturally forcing us away from the edge, even though they're at the same time, you know, sort of subsuming that edge. So that that anti-production is pushing us away. There's, there's an attempt at a balancing act, but we continually are moving sort of outwardly. Or I suppose I should say that we're moving towards an edge and a frontier that we will never achieve.
2: Yeah, because as I'm thinking about, like, the edge is internal.
1: Right, but this is a kind of this, you're starting to get to quite a complicated metaphysical point with that, aren't you? Because the whole concept of a horizon is an idea of an exteriority that is always already internal. I guess that's kind of what they're saying, I feel. And rather than actually debate the outside or inside, I think that's the kind of that's the whole point. That's the point of a margin. You know, the, uh, no margin is actually a margin. Um, there's a margin is critical to the you know, the negative space that's forming the the center itself. There's no periphery or center. Really. It's like you can go endlessly with that kind of thing. But uh, it is I, th- I do think it's right to start from an interiority. But like. I guess the point would be, well, what is an actual? Is there some actual exteriority you can point to? The point is that all of them are always instantiated from this kind of displacement.
0: I really, I, this, this chapter was excellent. Yeah, this is a, uh, it's going to be the end. But uh, we are going to try to do a review later this week of all of this, um, and I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be trying to set that up. Uh, please toss questions you have into our follow up questions chat here. Hit me on Twitter uh, or SoundCloud, as some of you do. I will integrate questions as much as we can. There's a lot for us to get through in this, but. Uh, and please, uh, anything I said or anyone else said, also feel free to critique, where the goal for us is to get as many opinions around all of this. And so that would be excellent. Yeah whereas uh, Alyosha says, "No, we're right. We understand that. Yeah, we're Stalinists now. That's great. Uh, everyone, have a have a lovely week, and uh, thank you again for joining us.